we are preaching on faith. Thank you, those of you who whooped. Um, it's so uh, brilliant to be able to get into the Bible and, um, and learn about faith together and um, expect God by his spirit to touch our hearts. Um, and so uh, as, we are, as we are preparing to do that, I'm going to just ask the Lord to help me to speak clearly and help you to, to really hear what he is saying. That's a really big deal. That um, the Bible says that he who has ears to, to, to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So, Lord, we just pray for the help of the Holy Spirit for me as I speak, for everyone else as they listen, that the right things would be said, that the right things would be heard. Um, just to commit this time to you, Lord. Thank you for the miracle of uh, your word, the miracle of preaching, the miracle of the work of your Spirit. Um, that can do amazing things in a, in, a, in a relatively short amount of time. We pray that would happen um, over this next period of time. Amen. Amen. Right, so we're looking at different elements of faith. Last week Richard looked at faith and finance. This week I'm looking at faith and finance. Because um, we we kind of noticed that we haven't spoken about it really much at all in our history as a church, eight years or so, um, which has been a, an oversight on our part, if you want to call it that. We've swerved it a bit because we know that... Um, not just numbers of people around, but numbers of people in the church have been in churches where money hasn't been handled well, or money's been the thing that's been spoken about every week, uh, or whatever, and, it, and it's like, you know, it becomes, it becomes obsessive, and it's the last thing we wanted. We probably reacted a little bit too much and, and just haven't really said much about it as a result. So we're wanting to just rectify that and make sure that instead of not, not doing it, that we do it well. And I'm sure you'll agree Richard did it well last week. Wasn't it a fantastic message? Just so, so helpful uh, in many ways. And so I just want to pick up on a few things, emphasise a few things that weren't emphasised um, last week. And I wanted to just start by saying that being a disciple, being a disciple of Jesus, however you want to call it, a Christian, a disciple, it really does involve entering the school of faith. You learn how to live by faith. That's what's going on there. If you, become, if you are here today and you're thinking about becoming a disciple, you're thinking about, I'm thinking about following Jesus, what does it look like? Well, it's like going back to school, but uh, it's learning how to live by faith. And it's something you learn. When you come to know Jesus, there's a, there's a gift of faith given to sort of bring you to life in, a initial, in an initial sense. You come alive to God and suddenly uh, God, who previously seemed really distant, now it's like, I know him. He lives in me by his spirit. It's, it's realer than anything else. Um, but that is the beginning of, of the Lord then teaching us how to live every part of our life by faith. So it's not just this God bit and then everything else, but that we learn to, to, to live in such a way as to bring him st- to become the central figure in all things. That's the life of faith. And there's things that we need to learn. We learn how to walk a new way. And before you were a Christian, you didn't live like that. You, you, you kind of lived primarily by what you could see, by what you could um, ascertain by your natural senses. Those were the things that whereby you made your main decisions. What can I see? How does it seem? And you, you, you adopt all of your natural senses and out of that place you make decisions. You experience what others are saying, but it's what you see and it's what you hear. When suddenly, when you become a believer, those things are still important and still matter and are still to be considered, but there is a voice that is above all those voices now. The voice of the Lord. And so it's very radical. It's, 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 it's at the root. It's not just something you add in to your life. It's an absolute revolution. It's very, very exciting. And at times not a little bit scary. 
So there are certain things in this school of faith that are central on the curriculum. Certain things, if you like, you know, sort of the um, the national curriculum, the kingdom curriculum. There are some big deals. Maybe things like anxiety and peace, that whole thing. How to, that God says a lot about anxiety and peace. Um, bitterness and forgiveness. God speaks a lot about those things. Sexual purity and sexual lust. God speaks a lot about that. Hoarding stuff to yourself, keeping your life, your time, your resources to yourself and living generously. God says a lot about that. So they're all faith issues. What I mean by that is this. God speaks about them and says things about them that are often contrary to what everyone else is saying about them. And so then I'm, I have this decision to make. Am I going to trust him, which looks like obeying him? Or am I going to mistrust him and therefore disobey him? It's actually fairly straightforward. But it's right at the heart level. It's right at the heart. It's, the Christianity is always at the heart level. It's not just about fixing your behaviour. Oh, start acting in a certain way now. No, no, no. Why are you acting like that? What's going on in there? Why are you speaking like that? What's going on in there? So Christianity, true Christianity is always at the heart level. What is God saying about uh, these things? Very, very um, important. So anxiety and peace. Jesus says things like, do you not know that not one sparrow falls to the ground without your father knowing? And you are worth much more than a sparrow. That's the word of God. So therefore, if I believe that, then actually I don't live my life constantly thinking, what's going to happen to me? That's unbelief. That's mistrust. Because God has said to me, do you know what? I am, I am concerned when a sparrow falls to the ground. How much more you? In fact, every one of the hairs on your head are numbered. If I believe that, it affects the way I live. I can put my head on my pillow at night and not fret. Faith. God, about bitterness and forgiveness. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So if I've been wronged, harmed, uh, harmed, hurt, abused, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I can leave that person with him from a revenge point of view. There may be practical things to do in terms of justice and stuff, but in terms of revenge in my heart, I give them to God. Why? Because I believe it when he says, vengeance is mine. Because I believe it, I do something. Just trying to show you how practical this thing really is. What does God say about our finances? What does he say? And will we believe him? I want to talk about this whole thing of giving. What does the Bible teach? Well, I'm sure many of you know how it worked in the Old Testament. In the bit of the Bible before Jesus came, how did God deal with the people of Israel, his people, and, and how did it work in terms of finances? Well, how it worked was this. It's fairly, fairly straightforward. There were 12 tribes. 11 of them had land. One tribe didn't, the tribe of Levi. And God says to the tribe of Levi, I've given all the other tribes an inheritance in the land, but as for you, I am your inheritance. And you're going to spend your time around the service of the temple, the tabernacle, around the worship and all of that. And so you won't be working the land, so you won't be harvesting a crop. But all the other tribes, what they're going to do is they're going to put aside 10% of their harvest, 
And they themselves will support you as you do that. It's called a tithe. It's an Old Testament principle. But that's how it worked. So it's very straightforward. It wasn't do it if you feel like it. It was this is how it works as God's people. It's just what it is. You put that aside for the Levites. And then the Levites could get on and do what they had been set apart to do without anxiety and thinking, where's the next meal coming from? And they worked together and everyone was served through that. So the other tribes were served by what the Levites did and the Levites were served by what the other tribes did. It was a very straightforward and system that worked very, very well. going to assume everything's cool. <laughs> Is that the best decision to make? Julia's going to find out. Julia's on welcome. She's going to find out. It's probably a good sign. Well, should we carry on? We'll just carry on. Everyone happy to? If you're not, run out screaming. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> so that's the old covenant. How does it work in the new covenant? You can't just take everything in the Old Covenant and say, well, it's the same. You can't just do that because you're not respecting the fact that a covenant is an agreement between two parties that's made, and that was between God and Israel. And we now live under the New Covenant, which means it doesn't work in the same way. But there are some things which are the same and some things which have changed. So how do you work out what just carries on? How do you work out now in the New Testament what's different? Thank God we haven't got to guess. It's not just like, well, what ones do you like? Carry on those ones and ignore the others. No, we're told because the New Testament is clear. For example, on the thing of food, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus makes this statement about it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, but what comes out of you. He says food that won't make you unclean. He says it's things like evil thoughts and evil desires. That's what makes you unclean. And then Mark specifically says in chapter 7 of his gospel, Therefore Jesus declared all foods clean. That is why, as Christians, we don't get all worked up about what foods we can and we can't eat. Jesus has declared them all clean. So that the new covenant uh, does not reflect the old covenant in that way. And yet there are other things that are continuous. For example, like do not commit adultery. How do we know that one's still continuous? Because it, is in, it, is, it comes through really strongly in the New Testament, but it gets right to the heart and says, it's not just the act, it's the, it's the even looking with lustful intent in your heart. So it just gets right to the heart of the thing, but in, in no way says this no longer stands. So that's how, we, that's how as Christians we work out what carries over from the Old Testament. It's the way the New Testament, Jesus, refers um, to it. So what does the New Covenant say about giving, tithing, for example? What does it say? Well, there is no instruction anywhere specifically that Christians must tithe. It's not in the New Testament. But there's a principle that continues. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 9, I'll show you how this principle of support continues. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 13 and 14 says this. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He's referring at this point to... Um, the, the Levitical priests I mentioned. Then he says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So there are certain people who are set apart 
to proclaim the gospel. We're all called to witness, we're all called to share the good news. But there are certain people who are set apart to preach the gospel. And the Lord teaches they should get their living by the gospel. Now that, now interestingly in this passage Paul goes on to say, I've chosen not to do that. Because it was a particularly sensitive scene with the Corinthians. And in order to just stop any anyone getting the wrong idea that he was out for greedy gain, he said, actually I've chosen not to do that just because I really don't want to do anything that will cause you to stumble. But the teaching of the Lord, of the Lord is, is that it's totally appropriate. And then if you look at the passage 1 Timothy 5, uh, 17 to 18, it says this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, and the context is about support, worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. So one, obviously it's always tricky, isn't it, because I'm reading about me, among other people. So it's always you feel a bit awkward, it's a bit embarrassing, I think, well, I'll teach the Bible on everything else, I'm not going to go quite on this. So it's just what it's the word of God, and I just want to be upfront about it. So this is what the New Testament teaches. There's a con- there's a continuation of the principle. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's still in there, and it's taught in the New Covenant. And Jesus Himself was actually supported by a significant number of wealthy women. You can read about that in Luke chapter eight, the, the first three verses. Jesus, for the three years of his public ministry, before that he was, obviously it appears he was most likely a tradesman, but when he became a full-time rabbi, if you like, um, we're told that he was supported by a number of very wealthy women, or wealthy women. So in that, in that sense, there's a, there's a principle there where God sets certain people apart to give their time fully, not, not for their, necessarily their whole life, sometimes it's for a season of their life, but it's an appropriate time for them to give themselves for the good of his people, to preaching and teaching, to proclaiming the good news and teaching the saints. And so, in one sense, I guess you could say that that's what you set me apart for. And also, I would say Sally, but in a very different kind of context. Not so much teaching the saints, but proclaiming the good news is what she does as our CAP centre manager. And then the other, the other element in terms of Adrian and, and Adam, really what, 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 what they are being employed and released to do is basically give attention to the fact that what God is building here needs administering and stewarding. Otherwise it just goes into complete chaos. <laughs> no one knows who's doing what, when. Lots of people that need help are falling through the gaps. Things need to be done well if we're going to build something here. So that's really, that's the principle and it holds good and it's a strong principle that we mustn't be afraid or ashamed of talking about. Um, I'll just read to you from this book. This is a great book. It's called Tough Topics. And this guy, Sam Storms, he, um, he kind of answers the, the difficult questions in the Bible. And he, he, he says this comment. He says, he says, is it permissible for a new covenant Christian to tithe? That is to give 10% of his or her income to the work of the church. Not only is it permissible, I would strongly recommend and urge you to do so. In choosing to give 10% of our income to the Lord, we are honouring a God-given Old Testament principle. In the absence of a prescribed percentage for giving in the New Testament, why not adopt the Old Testament pattern? However, this does not mean that you are sinning if you don't. To give only 8% or to give 15% is equally permissible. Not to give at all or to give disproportionately to your income, which, in the case, which is the case with most Christians today, or to give grudgingly, is indeed sin. 
Let us be joyful and generous in our giving. After all, everything we own belongs to God anyway. It's quite a logic there, quite a strong logic there. I'll read another quote in a minute because he says something, very powerful things. Um, but those people who have been set apart for gospel work are to be, it's appropriate for them to be supported by the rest of the church. Um, it works and it's a command of the Lord. There must be checks and balances in place. Otherwise it can become something that's abused. Which is why there's a team of elders or pastors in this church. It's not a one man deal. There are three of us who work as a team and also there are a team of trustees who are legally responsible uh, for our uh, conduct as a charity which includes financial management. Okay, we're, we're, It's a very, very safe scene. Everything is completely transparent. Let me read you this quote. I thought this was um, quite something. Just as the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian or a churchless Christian, so also the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who does not give faithfully and generously to the work of God. Faithful, generous stewardship of one's financial resources to support the life and ministry of the local church is as much a mark of a true Christian as his love for one's neighbour and sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't believe. Giving in support of the local church isn't optional. It's no more optional for the Christian than sexual purity or telling the truth or sharing your faith. Can you imagine a professing Christian saying, well, I love and follow Jesus, but I've decided that sexual purity and faithfulness to my spouse just isn't for me. Or, I've decided that lying and stealing are the best way to get along in the world. It is no less a contradiction of our, Christ, of our Christian faith to say, I'm not going to utilise my resources to support the work of the local church. That's just not who I am or where I think God is leading me. God should always receive the first fruits of our labour, not the leftovers. My wife and I have made a commitment to this in that the first thing we do is set aside our giving to the local church and only then do we pay our bills or purchase something we want. I fear most professing Christians spend and save and use their money for any number of purposes and then, if there's anything left over, they give to God. It's quite strong stuff. I agree with it. I agree with it. If me and my family are not giving to support the work of the church, now I know it's a little bit random in our case because what we're giving to then supports me. I get it. You might say, Steph, what are you doing? Just ask for less wages and then don't give. No. I'd rather have a living wage so I can still give. <gasps> I don't want to be, I do not want to miss out on an opportunity to give. It's an absolute joy to give. But if we, if me and my family are not giving to support the work of the local church in such a way that requires our heart, that requires our faith, that requires our joy, that requires our dependence on God to meet our needs, that requires us to actively look to God to meet us with provision, then we are in the sin of unbelief. We are in the sin of unbelief. We're in the sin of independence, selfishness, mistrust, greed, giving way to fear and the many other sins that spring from that. It's exactly what myself and Davina decided as soon as we got married. First fruits. First thing, you give. You j if you don't, then it's obvious what happens, isn't it? <laughs> it's obvious what happens. Pressures come in. Options present themselves. And it, it, it's, you just end up being led by circumstance rather than conviction. This is really important stuff. 
And, you know, if all of you were to say, Steph, actually, when we've all decided, just totally coincidentally, that we're all leaving Revelation Church tomorrow and joining other churches, but we, we do love you, but we're sort of decided, then I would say, well, okay, uh, but make sure that you listen to this sermon so that when you get to your new church, you're obedient to Jesus' commands. This is not about trying to get more. This is about making disciples. Really, really, truly is. It really, really is. That is that is our heart. Okay, I want you to understand that is our heart. There is there's nothing else behind it that's kind of lurking. That's our heart. And I really want you to hear that so you can mature and grow and be be, be blessed through that. So I want to just look at some of the things that may raise themselves as potential objections or, or just comments to speak into the, the Christian life. Just speak really honestly about first things about covetousness and contentment. Richard touched on it last week, but it's so important because we are living in a culture where we're constantly being told, you need more. And you know what? The Bible actually says some pretty challenging things in light of that. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. Listen to this. This is, this is pretty straightforward. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There you go. There's the promise. That, that is what combats the love of money. And that is what enables contentment. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You've got me. And I tell you, if Jesus cannot content your soul, (laughs) you probably haven't met him. Keep your life free from that. Something for you to do. Keep your life. Such a big deal. Don't live beyond your means. There's one. Living beyond your means. Living as simply as possible. It looks different in different seasons. But I'll give you an example. For us, it meant not having a car for five years. So we could still give meaningfully. And I know, you know, sometimes in conversations people say, yeah, it's fine, isn't it? Because we're in London and it's fine. And sometimes you go, yeah. And other times you go, yeah. But you're thinking, no. Because we had to walk back from church in the rain again. And we had to go to 58 weddings this year and get buses and borrowed cars and the kids were screaming. Do you know what I mean? And you think, this is really hard. Actually, <laughs> there are decisions that you make, and there is a cost to them. There is a cost to them. But that cost actually doesn't have the power or the bite to rob you of your conviction. And it, and it doesn't rob you of the blessing of God. But it does build character. It does build character. It's these um, practical decisions that are often more spiritually powerful than getting prayed for and singing. Sometimes it's just what decisions are you going to make? That is often the best way to, 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 to respond to a sermon. It's actually, it's like, I'm going to do this now and follow through. That's the stuff that makes for Christian growth. Decisiveness. Following through on when God speaks. And you know what it does? It kind of crunches that fear of, I won't have enough. Because sometimes you have seasons where you kind of don't. I remember, I will share this. Yeah, I've got peace about sharing this. And I know it's not, I know that you'll be cool with this, but it's more like, is it right with God? I think it is. There was one time, God just spoke to our hearts, just, just, just give away the month's wages. Just give away. And there's no savings. There's nothing. So just, when it comes in, just give it away. 
And it did. Now, I can't remember what happened, but we're still here. <laughs> Actually, I can't remember what happened. I remember, I think, I think one of our neighbours gave us a bottle of wine. Great. I mean, it's not exactly the first thing on our list. might have been for Davina, but it was the first thing on our list. And I remember giving, being given a bag of rice by someone, but I don't know what, it must have been rice, rice and wine that month. Risotto that month. But you, well, look, I don't know, I don't know what happened. I can't, I, you know, there, you know, there wasn't sort of 18 inches of quail in the kitchen one morning. It didn't happen. But we're still here. And it's cool. And God's amazing. Do you know what I mean? And then we've got other stories where, you know, you give and then, man alive, suddenly, you know, the, uh, the windows of heaven open and you think, this is extraordinary. And it's one of those reasons where God says, say to you, this is what I can do. Don't worry. But other times, like with Richard last week, you'll say, yeah, do you know what? I know you can't afford an oyster right now, but a walk across London won't do you any harm. Okay. Okay. Because he's a father, and fathers know when to discipline and train and when to just lavish. He's a father. Is this making sense? Yeah. Um, the other, so covetousness and contentment. It's a huge one. It's a battle for the heart. The other thing is about sort of debts. Because if you are, if you just want more stuff, you can find yourself in big trouble with debt and sort of how do you get out of that? There is, there is a trap. It, it, it really is. And I, I'm not saying it's making anyone feel bad. I was... I was brought up in a home that basically sort of ran on sort of catalogue, the catalogue thing. That was how that's why we bought stuff on, on catalogues and, and, and didn't do well as a, as a result. Um, so I'm not speaking from higher ground at all. Um, but it is, once we're in it, we do need rescuing um, from it. Um, and we are to prioritise. If you're a Christian, you are to prioritise clearing your debts. So when we got married, there were certain outstanding debts. You know, that's the priority, we're clearing those. That's... That's a good thing, because the, the Bible in Romans 14 says, be in debt to no one except to love them. That's a biblical principle, not to, be in, not to just be in debt to people. Um, it's, not, it's not a good way to live. That's why we run a cap money course here, which helps people with sort of budgeting, and that's why we have our cap centre, to help those who have found themselves in that position, to help get you out, and get you on your two feet, so that you can, you know, so you can walk freely again. Um, but there are two extreme responses to debt with regards to giving. To someone who's in debt when they hear about giving. The first extreme response is this. I'll give and then God will give me enough to clear my debts. The problem with that is that it can be uh, a, a kind of a way out of learning how to deal with money. Yeah, for some of us... We, 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 money's, we don't, we don't like, we don't know what to do with it, and we get scared. Maybe we, maybe we just, it's way our upbringing, who knows. But, uh, well if, or maybe if I just give this holding to God, he'll just do that floodgates of heaven thing, and then I can clear the debt. He might. He might. But actually, probably, if you are, if you, if you're like that around money, he's probably saying, no, let's help you learn to do money well. Because he's a good father. And he doesn't, he, that's not faith, it's more fear. He wants to teach you faith. It's really, really uh, important. That is. And it can get a bit superstitious as well. And I just get, it's like a bit formulaic, it's like a slot machine. Put it in and that comes out. It's, a, it's, it's more complex than that. The other extreme response is I'm going to refuse to give because I'm in debt. I'm not going to give at all because I'm in debt. I would just say this, part of redeeming your approach to finance involves getting good patterns in place. That's part of it. 
And even if because of the current debt you're in, you feel that the amount you give is inconsequential. It doesn't come, this will do nothing. <laughs> Fear not. You're putting a brilliant pattern in place. And what you're doing spiritually is hugely significant. Remember all those people putting loads of money in the pot and that little widow put a couple of, you know, the widow's might a couple of coins in and Jesus said, hey, look at that. Yeah? It's not about, it's not about the amount, it's about what's going on in there. Uh, and, you know, everything else kind of takes care of itself. So, don't go to either of those extreme things if you're in debt. Learn, look, what's your father wanting to teach you? You know, the gospel says, the gospel is, says this, that we are all in huge debt to God because of the things we do wrong. We are in debt. And God, in giving his son Jesus for us, to die on that wicked cross, has cleared our moral debt to him. What a message. You know, I mean, on one level you think, we come here and we sing similar songs week after week. And why doesn't it get dull? Because the truth of sins forgiven, debt paid by a gracious God, forgiveness, reconciliation, new life. How can that ever get dull? You know, if, if football fans can go to the same stadium twice a week and sing the same songs about that, <laughs> that, and I'm up for my match of the day, but let's be honest, in light of the gospel, that, I can come here and sing my heart out because I've been saved by Jesus. That's the gospel. Yes. And then just a little bit, a little one, we'll end on this one, um, on um, stealing and sharing. I love this verse. This is a fantastic verse. Ephesians 4 verse 28. Any of you thieves out there, you think, what would it be like if I become a Christian? This is what it would be like. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labour, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Not so that he might now become a respectable member of society. No, I didn't say that. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The gospel doesn't just produce nice people, but radically generous people. That's what the gospel ought to do. If that hasn't happened in you, listen, that's what the gospel ought to do. Yeah. <laughs> John Wesley said, if God touches a man's heart, he will touch his pocket. It's true. If God touches your heart, he'll touch your pocket. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. It's just a reality. It's what it is. The kind of grace the, Bible give, the gospel gives us is so over the top. It's so, the fact that the word used, abound, it kind of means unnecessary. It's like God has gone way beyond what is necessary in order to save us. He's welcomed us in. It's like, you know, it's like the, it's like, you know, the sort of the favourite uncle who comes around and can't buy you enough ice creams. That one, you think, oh, it's him, you know, it's gonna be, yeah, it's that uncle, it's that granddad, you know, ah, that is the heart of God in the gospel. Totally over the top. And it is to produce that kind of way of living and thinking in us. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I find it embarrassing when I, you know, I see Christians who, they go into a cafe to meet someone and they just sit, they just kind of, no, I'll be alright, I'll just sit here. Don't do that. You're in someone's establishment. 
Someone's making a living through you being in there, but they're not. <gasps> they're not. Why? Because you've decided, no, I'm just sitting. Don't just sit there. Help them make a living. You sit in their establishment. Be generous. I'll be honest with you. Here's the theme from my Christian life. Do you want to hear this? This is the theme from my Christian life. Are you ready for this? You go out from here with Christians and you go Dutch. Which means you will pay for what you had. The money that ends up on the table is always less than the bill. Am I right? What the heck is going on there? The money that ends up, it's always less. What is that? That is bad behaviour. That is not gospel living. That is a denial of the gospel of the grace of God. It's what it is. It's embarrassing as well. Because there's one or two who always have to go, okay, then flipping that, I already put in more now because someone around here who's probably gone to the toilet. It's bad behaviour. Alright. Alright. Thank you. Either, right, either we've got life to the full coming uh, and we're going to be at the marriage feast of the Lamb and it's going to be amazing um, and, and that's what we're really excited about or, or it's not. In which case, get all you can now, eat and drink for tomorrow you die. The first is a Christian mentality, the second is a pagan mentality. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. And so what, 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 to end, to finish, application, practical application. Because Bible teaching, Jesus' teaching always demands a response. In your running partners, which are the kind of small, tiny groups we do as a church, the sort of twos and threes and fours, we meet together, talk about giving. Ask one another, are you, are you, are you giving to the church faithfully, regularly? I, I, I'm so naive. I'm so naive. I just kind of assume that everyone's doing what they can. Everyone's in, all in. I just assumed it. And I, I had a couple of conversations, well, one particular conversation a couple of years ago, just totally, sh- I just didn't know what to say. Just got a text from someone, be good to chat about something. I find you, yeah, someone carrying significant responsibility in the church. And just sat down and chat. Yeah, I just kind of feel like, you know, maybe God's, maybe God's saying I should be giving. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he is. You know, just because the Bible, it's not I'm, not. I'm not like I can see into your heart. Yeah, he is. You're a Christian. But I was trying to be really gentle about it. Yeah, just you know, didn't didn't you know, sort of fall on the floor and look at him. I like, oh, just you know, oh, yeah. you know. And then we met up nine months later. How's that thing going? You know, he was tricky approaching it. You know, I was just not really clear on it yet. And I thought, man, alive. What is I don't get it. It's there. Just obey the Lord. He's faithful. He's, just believe him. Just trust him. Trust him. This is this is the command of the Lord. It's an obedience issue. No one's going to force you. And not none of the elders know who gives what. So we don't worry about that. We just deliberately say, I don't want, I don't want to know. Just wouldn't be helpful. 
So no, you know, but this is a, I pray the Lord. Um, I want to ask you just, I guess, just to wait for a moment. And what do you need to do? You know, what do you need to, what do, you need to do? And then, and then there's, there's a response. There's a, we, we wanted to be practical. What I was kind of, I remember chatting with some of the guys about how to do this Sunday in preparation. What I didn't want to do is kind of like preach, preach this, and then sort of like sign here. Do you know what I mean? I just, oh, it's a bit. Ugh, I don't want to do that. But at the same time, I'm thinking, but we want to help people respond practically. You want to help people say, well, okay, respond to the Lord. You know, I actually believe what I'm saying is true. If the Holy Spirit's convinced you, then they want to make it easy. So, so they'll, uh, when we take the bread and wine in the next part of the service, there's other tables here. If you just decide, you know, actually, yeah, I really, you know, I've, maybe you've just forgotten to do a gift aid form, or maybe you've, you know, whatever, you, you know, you want to amend your giving, or you want to, you know, maybe you've sort of given a bit randomly, and you think, oh, I want to do a standing order. There's a chance for you to do that there. Now, but I want you to read that right. What it is, it's us making it easy for you to respond in obedience to the Holy Spirit if He has spoken into your heart. That's what it is. Okay? It's not. It's not anything different from that. It's, I, I know I'm labouring it, but it's just because it's money. You just got to. You just got to make sure you you aren't you aren't creating stumbling blocks. So that's it. That's the gospel crash landing. <laughs> not a smooth end. I just, you know, there's, there's a spiritual thing about responding obedience to God and then God takes care of the finances of the church. Does that make sense? As we obey him in our heart, he takes care of the finances. So we'll just ask you to just obey him in your heart. Amen.